listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Non-attachment was shown today in a really interesting way in the, our, our home, or maybe I should say in my car, when my daughter decided to projectile vomit all over everywhere. Um, she's okay, but it's just a reminder about attaching to the cleanliness and order of one's car, how that can lead to suffering. <laughs> It was it was quite priceless because uh, she, <laughs> whenever she does something, when she gets hurt, she's she's almost two. For those those of you that are, I tell stories about her all the time. Uh, she, by the way, is my Zen master now, so she's my teacher. Um, whenever she gets hurt, she says sorry. You know. So, you know, she, she, you know, she pops herself, or she's, and she's pretty tough. She, you know, skins her knees, ah, sorry. And it's like, oh, no, you don't have to be sorry. Yeah, sorry. And today, <clears throat> and she, was, she was clearly not feeling well. And I'm looking at her in my rearview mirror, and, and I, it was one of those classic moments where I say, honey, is Kate okay? And then at that moment, it's like you, just everything went everywhere. First thing she says is, "Oh, sorry, Dada." You know, you know, as if she was caring for my Acura. You know, um, and I should have been bowing to her, not only for for dealing with this obvious obvious discomfort, but also we cannot protect forever anything. I had. Uh, one of my teachers say to me very, very specifically, she pulls me aside when we were, uh, my wife and I were uh, just about to get married, and she was actually the one who was going to be performing the service, and she said, you two, you've got to remember one thing. The wedding china is already broken. And I was, I thought that was the coolest teaching. It's like everything is already, already a mess. We can fight to keep things exactly the way we want. We can work really, really hard to make sure that stuff stays exactly as planned. Outcomes occur the way they're supposed to. We can do that. We can spend, and some people are pretty damn good at that. In fact, the people who are best at that are usually the worst at this kind of practice. First of all, they have no need. Why should one practice? Why should one practice if one is successful? They do, time and time and time again. The other reason, actually, uh, we, we can find that people who are, who are really, really successful um, can be uh, uh, hit with practice is that it's not something one can get.
you don't master stillness. Stillness masters you. You don't master meditation. Meditation masters you. And this is just a real subtle turn of things, but I think it can be so helpful to begin looking at our practice as that very activity or non-activity that allows to experience, or at least it betters our chances for us to experience the divine accident of awakening. We better our chances. We get done by meditation. It does us. It uh, creates an interior form of jailbreak. Some of you may have seen um, uh, uh, the, the great film Shawshank Redemption, where he escapes from prison bit by bit with this little um, uh, hammer with a tiny spike on the end. And <laughs> so fine, it's, it's a fable, whatever, but still, it's such a great metaphor for what it is that we're doing here in this room, in these lives of ours. Just little bit by little bit, wearing away those bind. So if you have a similar experience to uh, a, a two-year-old projectile vomiting all over the interior of your car, you're reminded, ah, there's some dharma. There's a teaching. <laughs> it's just a car. You know? It's just life. Doesn't mean we negate. I have a very, very dear friend who uh, up until recently was this, uh, what you might call a gearhead. He was really into automobiles and so forth. And, um, you know, always had like the coolest, the coolest thing to drive. And I always thought this was kind of a, a funny, a funny characteristic. I mean, I myself, nice piece of machinery that I know it, it'll start each time. Love that. That is really cool. Um, not necessary to have much more than that, but you know, uh, still, uh, what this, what this friend of mine decided to do as a spiritual practice, I thought this was really cool. He decided to get, um, a rather beat up small truck and he traded this gorgeous Audi that he had and he said it's just a I, I want to experience this I have spent way too much time playing this this image card you know I was tied so so much into what kind of car I drove and so forth and I, I wanted to see what this felt like I think it was a really fascinating spiritual practice and takes a tremendous I think Will it awaken you? We'll see. We'll see how it works for him, and I'll report back. But there is a point at which every single one of us on the path begins to really have this amazing chance, a gift, at who it is we think we are. We get to see the clinging that occurs in relationship to this personality 
or this image that we've created for ourselves, these roles that we have kind of fostered and nurtured. It's not that they're bad. It's that they're inherently incomplete. And when we can really begin to recognize the incomplete status of our perceived status, we begin to unlock this mystery. Once again, the accident-prone nature begins to kind of inform who and what we are, what we do, and we become available. So tonight as we sit, if you could just pay real close attention, real close attention to who you think you are. Don't cling to it. Just notice it. Who do you think you are? And please don't judge. Don't judge it. Just meet it. Judging it just creates facet to the personality. Sometimes can embolden a certain part of your personality, perhaps the critic, that is already emboldened. Just notice. Who do you think you are? discussion with someone recently about uh, the Buddha uh, and they came at the discussion from a decidedly different perspective they um, they were uh, still fairly deeply ensconced in uh, a different tradition and which I actually thought was pretty cool uh, but their their, their comment was that, you know, that, that Buddhism, the cool thing that, that, that they liked about Buddhism was that it was, was mystical, like some of the aspects of uh, other, other traditions, mystical Islam, mystical um, Judaism, stuff like that. And I kind of, uh, I, I was thinking about it, and what attracted my egoic sensibilities as I was first starting out on this path was that it wasn't about mysticism. It wasn't about mysticism at all. In fact, uh, I, I then went out on a limb and I said, but you know what? I don't think we can, really, we can really say whether any of these great teachers from any of the traditions are really mystics. In fact, it probably serves us better if we just look at them as really ordinary. And this kind of shook the foundations of the, of the uh, conversation. went on, as I'm known to do. And, and uh, you know, I mean, when you, when you see a Dharma talk, give it. That's pretty much the way I, I operate, you know. Uh, makes me really popular with family members. <laughs> but the idea that... Um, the Buddha was just a normal guy. Unless you start getting into the religiosity, the, unless you get into the Buddhism of it all. 
I have no qualms with religions per se, except that religions have the capacity to infantilize sensibilities. They can infantilize our spiritual sensibilities. They can make our spiritual sensibilities small. They can make children out of us. Um, the opposite of this might be to look at wisdom traditions from a deeply egoic space, which is uh, like hardcore atheism, which is just the same thing as fundamentalist religion of any kind, if you think about it. Fundamentalism is fundamentalism. It's just clinging. It's just cl clinging to a view. I cling to no God. Great. That's still clinging. That causes anger. Okay. I cling to the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha said that we don't know what the Buddha said. We have no clue. Get over it. <laughs> we have no real idea. Well, we have an idea of what Christ said, but we're not absolutely 100% positively sure of any of this. But it says here in the Bible, or it says here in the Lotus Sutra, or it says here in the Upanishads, or in the Quran, or in the in Talmud, you get the idea. We can infantilize ourselves and go into that space really readily if we're not careful. And many of us have kind of seen that that kind of clothing doesn't fit very well. Or, but it doesn't seem to fit very well anymore. That's what attracted me to Buddhism. I was attracted by the fact that this was not about believing anything. This was about action in the form of non-action. It took me a long time to learn that one, but still, it was like, oh, wait, so you mean I don't, have to, I don't have to just accept the Buddha as my personal savior or something like that, and then I'm saved, right? And they're like, no, sign me up. And then at that point, um, all hell broke loose because I realized that that wasn't my conceptions of what I was being taught were precisely wrong on every single level. It was incredibly unsettling. Oh. Uh, I wanted to share with you, basically, it's a, it's a, it's a component, two com there are two components to this process. We, we recognize that there's a dilemma, and then there's a resolution to the dilemma. And that's exactly what the Buddha taught, if he taught, OK? Assuming, let's just assume that historically there was a guy who had some really cool insights because he sat really still for a long time. Let's just assume that this is true. What did he come up with? They say he came up with some stuff that I think is really valuable no matter what tradition you subscribe to. Dilemma, resolution. Here's the dilemma. We go through we suffer. No matter how happy we are, we fall back into this space where we're never perpetually in peace. There's no lasting harmonic grace that we can, we can be in on this earth. There's this, there's this suffering that creeps in. I mean, we get away from it for a while, but then it creeps back in. The next thing that was taught, and this is the other part of the dilemma, is that there are causes. 
their causes to this suffering, to this anguish, to this incredible, deep longing that burns painfully. They're and then there's resolution. There is an end to that suffering. It's out there and in there all at once. And then there's the fourth noble truth that says, here's how. Here's how you do it. So the Buddha, you know, in his first big talk, his first big Dharma talk, was not getting all, <laughs> wasn't getting very esoteric. He was just basically laying it out there, assuming it was a guy, just laying it out there. We got suffering, we got a cause to suffering, we got an end to suffering, and here's how you get there. It's quite beautiful, quite elegant. Dilemma, suffering and its causes. Resolution, there's an end to this and here's how. Basic, okay? And you don't have to believe squat. You don't have to believe any of this. Here's how you might apply it, though. Every single one of those truths, if you will, I'm getting pretty Buddhist on you tonight, so bear with, but every single one of the, the Four Noble Truths actually has a concomitant bit of action that we can apply. So, for instance, uh, we, we look at, uh, look at our, our suffering. Uh, another way we could look at our suffering is to recognize it as, uh, as blindness. It's our blindness. We're running away from stuff. Suffering cannot happen if you stay right there with it. And I, of course, always have, have described in meditation sometimes you, it's, it's, if you, any of you ever get into a situation where you have an itch or a pain or a muscle twitch or something like that, just sit with it. Instead of running away, just sit with it and you'll watch it naturally ebb on its own. It'll naturally, it'll naturally dissipate to a certain degree. This is the, sit with it. Try it. Try being right there next to it. The big fear, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but uh, if you've ever been on a beach where the waves are big, when there are some big waves, um, this, this happened to me when I was, a, I was a little kid. It was great Zen advice from my dad, who happened to, happens to be this amazingly gifted swimmer. And he's taken me out there, and I was probably, like, looking back on it, I was probably way too young to be body surfing on big waves. But we're at Corona Del Mar. Uh, near, near Newport Beach. And uh, we're looking at some monsters coming, especially to me, they were, they were just, just huge. And he says, now, Michael, we can do this. We can do this. The main thing, and do not fight currents. You need air, do not fight currents. Are you ready? And I'm like, yeah, Dad, I got this. I'm like, Phew. you know, and I was pretty cocky, you know, thinking hey, I, can, I can take this on. And then I watched my dad, you know, we're kind of swimming out there, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm taking that one. And he, he happened to be like this, like, state champion freestyler in his day. And he just takes off and starts, starts swimming. And he rides this <laughs> massive wave, and I, I'm out there, like, with him a little bit, and, and then I see him, you know, the wave kind of peels off, and then I kind of go up and over it, and I'm like, that is so cool. I want to do that. 
So I see, I see one coming. And instead of doing the, I mean, what I should have done is swam up into the face of it. I decided to try to, by the way, never do that, okay? If any of you are surfers or bodies, never do that. I hesitated. And then the wave crashed on me. And I felt this tumble. I had no idea which end was up, and it kept going. And then I started to realize, oh, yeah, I need air. How the hell is that going to happen? Oh, my God. I might die. Mom's going to be so pissed at Dad. <laughs> well, I ended up kind of popping up and <gasps> taking a breath and then getting sucked back down again, but then realizing, okay, don't fight it, don't fight it, don't fight it. And then it was kind of like I floated up and I started swimming, and my dad, you know, he kind of says, did you catch it? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Pretty fun, huh? No, yeah, you know. Sure, you go into it. Do not hesitate. Do not run away from a wave ever. It will always get you. Zen advice. Do not run away from that wave of suffering that you can see coming. Meet it. Go right up into it. You'll notice that it flows through you. It has no interest in killing you. It has no interest in wiping you out. Your judgments about it are really interested in making sure that that happens because then that which judges can remain in control. Ego wins. Face those waves. Our suffering is to be right there with it. It's to be right there with it, to recognize it fully for what it is and what it is not. The practice for recognizing the origins of suffering, and by the way, the origins of all of our suffering, all of our deep-seated anguish is clinging to stuff that we can't hold on to. Grabbing on to those plates of china. These will never break, and we build entire lives around not letting anything happen to those, metaphorically speaking at least, plates of china. And that limits us significantly generates the suffering in the first place. Our clinging is what generates. It's like, it's like lunar gravity. It creates waves. All of our clinging to whatever it is. I want to stay young. I want to preserve the smell of the interior of my car. You know, whatever it is. We, we cling to these things. And when we realize we cannot possibly control everything, when we realize that, we can then go on into the next stage of resolution. But getting into that clinging, getting into the the, the practice that comes with clinging, the practice that comes with clinging, just like uh, recognition and acceptance comes with suffering, the practice that goes best with clinging, let go. The technical term is renunciation, except the moment I say that, people freak out because renunciation means like, oh, I have to become a renunciate. Well, actually, I hope so. But the kind of renunciate we're talking about is not the one you've created an entire story around that you're clinging to right now. The deepest, purest form of renunciation has nothing to do with the religious order. It has everything to do with the practice of opening.
And when we do that, when we begin to release, first we recognize, then we release. When we do that, dealing with the, the third, the third uh, truth, which is the end of suffering, or cessation is sometimes our abbreviated way of talking about it. Cessation. What's the activity that comes with the cessation of suffering? It's called realization. We realize as we start to practice this stuff, as we start to meet those ways, and we realize that the wave won't kill us, and then we start recognizing the source of those waves, and the sea calms down, this oceanic experience called me begins to see Oh my goodness, there is a certain pacification that comes. We begin to realize openness. It's no longer academic. It's not a thought exercise. It's not a belief or mystical experience. It's just basic, pure, open realization. And then the way to get there, the path, we might say, capital P. is to reintegrate all of this stuff into every single moment we're awake. Every single moment we're shimmying and shaking on this planet, we begin to reintegrate what we thought we were. The person is totally new because they're really pretty much not, no longer attached to personhood. They're no longer attached to being a somebody, making a name for themselves. They're not attached to that at all because they see that that clinging actually created a whole bunch of waves that pounded them and others. We begin to just shake loose a little. Nothing mystical about this. And if this is at the core of the Buddha's teachings, I think he was really on to something. Or she. You don't have to believe any of it. You don't have to believe it. Does it make sense? If so, great. Use it. If not, you, you know, we can do something else. So dilemma and resolution. And there's a, a practical walk away that you can, uh, you can fill with some of this stuff that's quite basic. And that is just that every single one of us has so many opportunities to practice this. Every one of us can get reminded of our clinging in some situation. Is it bad? No, it's not bad. It is. That's all you got to do. Meet it. You meet it fully. You meet your clinging fully. And it dissolves on its own. You practice that. Every single time you begin to see things more clearly. Every single time you can let go. Every single time you can begin to meet your life with utter intensity. Every single time you can practice. Every single time anything comes up, 
you're invited to practice. Did any questions come up? Yeah. So our assignment is to just identify it when it happens and just say, that's clean. Step one, identify what is happening. Step two, you can assess whether or not clinging is occurring or not. Cool thing is, if you can get to that step, to where you're recognizing if clinging is occurring, the very awareness that sees the clinging is not clinging. So it's, it, it frees itself. It's, that, it's a bizarre way of saying it, but this kind of goes beyond words at this point. We witness what's going on, and in not going after it, not, or not getting you know, caught, we tend to then be free of whatever it was that prior may have really, really given us some sweat. Actually, that's really interesting. The minute, the minute clinging occurs, if then there is, ah, stop that, don't do that, that's clinging to the clinging. And so the clinging still occurs and creates deeper suffering because it's self-inflicted. So that's why it's not about doing anything. It's about observing everything. Being aware and not clinging. Okay? Not clinging, however, does not mean that do anything. And you become blasé about the world. There's a lot, of, a lot of work to do. But it makes a qualitative difference in the type of work that we do throw at the world if we're going at it from a space that is not divided, if it's unified. We recognize our oneness with all things. Suddenly that, the, that offers up to any situation that needs our attention, our love, our care, you know, our spine, whatever it is, becomes qualitatively uh, enhanced. So do you think clinging causes division? Clinging can only occur if div division is a prerequisite of clinging. If the great oneness is our psychological and spiritual center of gravity. Clinging occurs when I'm in here and everybody else is out there, or we're here and they're out there, gang. Right? That's the only time that division can occur. That space right there is actually also, as Krishnamurti used to like to point out, that space, perception of self and everything else, is the sum total of human pain. All of that is the sum total of human pain. It's kind of like what we were talking about. It's the force of all waves crashing. Yes, uh, right here, right here. So this observation, bear with me, um, and you're aware of your clinging, and you've moved to the point where you're not judging or judging the judge, but you're still doing it, but then you're laughing at it. 
clinging, but you're giggling at the fact that you're doing the clinging? Yeah. yeah, well, then what happens is the clinging doesn't... Have you ever tried to hang on to something heavy while you're laughing? Quick story. We're moving. I know I've shared this with you, uh, so please forgive, but this is just one of my favorite stories. Uh, my parents had... Uh, George Steck piano. If you know anything about player pianos? The George Steck was the first one ever to be a player piano with expression, so it could go piano pianissimo, and it could also just go, you know, forte fortissimo. And you could you could hear all these great pianists of the you know 1920s, 30s, and 40s playing their own music, and you could you could take the role and put it in your home. You could hear. Paderewski playing Paderewski. Gershwin, uh, my favorite, of course, Rachmaninoff playing Rachmaninoff. It's really cool. Big, giant piano that weighed twice as much as a normal piano, okay? And we had these piano movers, because we were moving homes, these piano movers coming into the house, and they're, they're, they finally get the thing hoisted, and they're walking out with the thing, and I'm standing with my brother. We're walking down the hall ahead of these guys. We're kind of clearing things out of the way, making sure that everything... And <laughs> this is a very... Very poor judgment on my part. But what I did was Mark standing next to me here, and I had to sneeze. And, you know, house full of boys, you do stupid things like this. I sneezed right at him. And all sorts of stuff came flying out of my face and hit Mark on the, on the side of the face as these movers were moving the piano. I started laughing. And, and, and the piano's like going this way and this way, and they're going, stop it, stop it, stop And they're still cracking up. Well, finally... One of them dropped one side and it just went ka-ching and made this horrible noise. And, and I'm like, I'm a jackass. How that, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And they're like, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. They lift it up and they keep walking. <laughs> but it was just one of those reminders that when we can start seeing the folly, the cosmic giggle in the midst of all of this stuff, it's not so serious. Still, there comes a point with practice that we don't even get caught by it that much. We don't, get, we, we don't find ourselves going back into it. Laughter can also be a form <laughs> here I go again. More heroin. Oh, well, you know. You know, I mean, I know that's not the case. You look way too healthy, but, but, but you know what I'm saying? You know? So it becomes this, this certain stable steadiness that we can carry then into whatever situation it is and not get caught by the situation. Yeah? Thank you. It's a great class. You had one, sir. I, I do. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on what a life without clinging is like? Because I mean, are you asking me personally, or, or <laughs> whatever works for you? <laughs> what is a life without? It, are you asking me so that you can get your mind around it? A little bit. Then stop. Because there's clinging everywhere. Oh, oh, it, it, enlightenment is not common. <laughs> I mean, in me, there's clinging everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So you got some work to do. But you can do it. You know, I can't see the target. Okay, excellent. It's not a target. It's a way. Okay? It's not a goal. It's not a goal. It's a practice. You don't have to believe in anything, Paul. 
<laughs> okay, good. Good. And don't, don't believe in any preconception or what anybody has taught you that awakening is or should be. Because then what do you do? You just set ego up to run the whole process. And that's disastrous. It's not as disastrous as being totally asleep. Like I've said before, egos that, that you know, limited views that think they're absolute are just slightly less obnoxious to be around. Um, and it can, be, it can be really troubling because we begin to, f- to, the self begins to fool itself into thinking that it's much bigger than it actually is. Yeah. This is very difficult. So stop right there. Stop right there. Stop right there. Don't imagine it. Be it. That takes the mind out of the entire circuitous eddy. That you, the flow of your life starts going and spinning in that moment when we start, we start making mental projections about it. And we can't help it to us browbeat you or anything. I love you like a brother, but I, I do think that this is really, really important for practice. It's not about what it should look like or what it should be. It's what already is within you right now underneath all of that stuff. Anyone else? Yes. So I need to understand, being aware that one is clinging does not necessarily mean it'll stop at that moment. Actually, it, it, it will. But there's a, there's but most of our awareness of the clinging, we, we're aware of it, and then we go right back into the actual clinging. It's like we, we pull up, we go, oh, there's clinging, and then uh, we go right back into the state of clinging. Does that make sense? Instead of the awareness of the state of clinging. In other words, if you, if you watch, have you ever, you ever been aware of, of clinging? Okay? And then you go right back into the mood or the emotion or the physical pain or whatever it is, the suffering that that clinging brings. It's like you get caught and you forget about the awareness of it. You're just right back into it. My point is that what happens is with enough practice, that awareness begins to hold itself around the clinging longer and longer and longer, there's more space. And so as a result, choices can be made. There comes a point when there's enough space between the awareness of the clinging and the clinging itself that we, there's, believe it or not, this, this, this awareness that's, I can, I can choose not to go back into that. And then what happens? We become this amazingly fluid being instead of one that is in this staccato of, uh, you know, push-pull, crash, push-pull, crash, push, you know, that type of thing. I mean, it's never that bad. But, it, you know, it's, it, oftentimes it just it, it becomes much less messy, much less sticky. It's much more free-flowing. Rocks have been cleared from the bottom of the riverbed, and the riverbed flows. Anybody think of another metaphor? Is that good? Okay, good. <laughs> You're welcome. Yes. Thank you so much for coming tonight.